Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson with my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes. Since the FBI search on Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home more than a week ago, the response from Republican officeholders has been to demonize the Department of Justice, the FBI, and law enforcement in general. Republican firebrand Marjorie Taylor Greene called for the FBI to be, quote, destroyed and defunded. And the echoes of that exact sentiment have sounded throughout Republican Party leadership. And our guest today says that this message is a bit like hearing a clock chime for a 13th time at high noon. It's not only a problem in itself, it calls the entire underlying mechanism into question. And indeed, she identifies a growing pattern of opposing the rule of law and celebrating lawlessness at the heart of the Republican Party. Caroline Fredrickson is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law. She served as the president of the American Constitution Society, and she's a frequent guest on television and radio, including serving as a regular on-air commentator during Donald Trump's impeachments. She regularly contributes opinion pieces for The New York Times, The Washington Post, and other news outlets, the most recent of which was the lawless GOP response to the raid at Mar-a-Lago in the New York Times. Caroline, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. It's The pleasure is, is absolutely all ours. You had a really incisive, eye-opening op-ed. They used to call it an op-ed. Now they call it opinion pieces <laughs> in the <laughs> New York Times on August 9th, right in the wake of the search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, and it was really quite prescient. We've obviously learned a great deal since then, but you you really hit the nail on the head with everything you said in that piece. First of all, as a writer myself, I want to commend you for your description of Mar-a-Lago as Trump's winter palace in the opening line of your op-ed, <laughs> evoking images of the czar that Trump clearly thinks he is. I want to give a chef's kiss to that brilliant writing. Now, oh, thank you. <laughs> you. You wrote in that op that this this was essentially a, the epitome of a celebration of lawlessness. But we've learned a lot since then about exactly what Trump had in his possession and why the FBI and Attorney General Merrick Garland felt that they needed to act with such urgency. So just reflecting on what we've learned since then, and from a legal standpoint, what has stood out to you the most? Well, I mean, oh, well, from a legal standpoint, I was <laughs> maybe I could just start with quickly uh, just a commentary on the reactions from Please. Donald Trump's supporters, because what has really stood out to me in that in that regard is how little it's changed, despite the fact that we've had confirmed for us the seriousness of the the situation we faced with Donald Trump having made off with a huge variety of documents with very great significance for our national security. Nonetheless, the, the number of Republicans who continued to protest against the jackbooted thugs that came in and ran, ransacked his house and made off with his passports is just really incredible to me because it just indicates how far the party has 
gone from its moorings and and how upended it has become in terms of what it stands for legally though now back to your real question legally it it i think it confirms what we all suspected which is that someone like Merrick Garland the attorney general of the United States former chief judge of the DC circuit court federal circuit court here a former prosecutor at DOJ before that period of time he is a very very cautious and serious person. He's not a flamethrower. He's not a partisan political hack, which I might say is true of some of Donald Trump's appointees, naming no names, Bill Barr. But nonetheless, I tell, I think we, we had with, with, with Merrick Garland, those who are familiar with his career and his seriousness and purpose and carefulness knew that there was a lot there. He's not going to march in to make some kind of political play. So I think we were all expecting, those of us who are informed and not haven't been completely mystified by Donald Trump's sorcery, I mean, mystified in the sense of, of in the witchery, those of us who, who, who actually have an a, a impression of, of Merrick Garland knew that this was something very big, that they would go in there. And so what I think we've had confirmed for us is that the, 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 what they were searching for, which they had very, very great information that was actually there, had, was something of great concern to our nation. And I think so. So I, I guess people should just understand that the, that the attorney general, certainly for a variety of reasons, number, number one is that you just don't go into somebody's um, private abode and, and take documents away, but without great cause, hopefully. But when you're looking at the what the, the the actions of a former president, there is a great deal of caution. And so I, I think all of those things put together made me think, certainly, and I think, again, those who followed Merrick Garland and have some familiarity with these laws knew that this was a bomb about to go off. Caroline, I want to just get us a little bit into some legal weeds for a moment. I'm a former prosecutor. I prosecuted white collar crime and murders at the beginning of my career. I was pointing out on air earlier this week that the question of whether the former president declassified the documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago is really a red herring. I mean, notwithstanding the fact that in response to some of his insane tweets while he was president, his own administration had to go to court to argue that he can't just wave his hands and declare documents declassified, but there's actually a real process for doing that. But there are specific violations of federal law at issue here that don't depend on whether these items were or were not declassified. Could could you help us just put some of the dumb defenses to rest here about these documents being declassified, being declassified or subject to attorney client privilege? Absolutely. Well, so the two major laws here that are, are at issue are the Presidential Records Act and the Espionage Act. And both of those are independent of classification. Certainly, there's a degree of seriousness that comes depending on the importance and the, 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 the national security implications of any of those violations. But nonetheless, people have to understand that the classification laws are, certainly with the Espionage Act, were adopted subsequent to the Espionage Act, which de depends on a variety of categories involving national security uh, issues that are independent of whether something is classified or not. If there's an issue um, of great importance to our national security, it can be covered by the Espionage Act. And so Donald Trump can't declassify himself out of any of that. And the Presidential Records Act 
speaks for itself. We have, as a, as a rule of law nation, hopefully, we, and one that used to at least care about history, we preserve records for a variety of reasons. One is to make sure that we, are, we understand what has happened in the past, that we know a sequence of events so that we understand history, but also to have a better accounting of, of how the different actors have performed. But the president does not own the White House, and the president does not own the administration. The president is a servant of the people. He works for us. And thus, the documents that are created are ours. And he can't just carry them away. I mean, we've had prosecutions. Remember Sandy Berger, who was prosecuted. I was a national security advisor to Bill Clinton for going to the National Archives and, and, and walking out with a document stuck down his sock. And he was caught and prosecuted. Other people have been prosecuted. You just those things don't belong to you. They belong to us. As I said, they don't belong to you, the president or any member of the administration. They belong to the American people and they can't be. So again, it doesn't matter at that point whether it's classified or not classified. Donald Trump doesn't own it. Don, down his sock is sort of, it sounds very quaint and sort of the best possible version in the era of Trump of, of where national security really... documents could end up. I want to get to the heart <laughs> of your New York Times op-ed, which is this broad Republican response, which is elevating and celebrating lawlessness. First of all, the specific language involved, they were all very consciously trying to adopt whatever words came out of Donald Trump's mouth. I sort of defy Republican office holders these days to say anything out loud while Donald Trump drinks a glass of water. But the strategy here does seem to be a classic DARVO. DARVO is an acronym for deny, attack, and reverse victim and offender. And that's exactly what's unfolded. Now you wrote in your piece, quoting here, rather than express concern about a possible violation of Presidential Records Act or even simply withhold judgment until more information becomes available, Mr. Trump's defenders instead attacked law enforcement officials. Now, if we were in a court of law, what I'm about to ask you might be stricken because it calls for speculation but we get to get away with it on podcast and radio. Mm -hmm. What do you think is driving this? What, what's, what's behind this unanimity of defending Trump by attacking law enforcement? Well, it's really a puzzling thing because as I was sort of hinting at at the beginning, the Republican Party has really cut itself loose from its moorings, or at least it used to try and portray itself as the party of law and order. And certainly they attacked the Black Lives Matter movement and efforts to change policing culture. But when it comes to law enforcement actually enforcing the law against them, somehow all, all bets are off. I, I mean, I guess rule of law, law and order and respect for law enforcement only apply when the actions are directed at people who don't include the Republican base, a variety of people that don't need to be named again, but the Black Lives Matter movement was certainly an embodiment. And so it, it, it may begin to show in, in some ways what was truly driving um, a lot of that kind of rhetoric, which wasn't truly a respect for law, but really more of an interest in preserving hierarchy status and control of society. And what we have with, I think, is a kind of a desperation at this point from this far right extreme that has taken over the Republican Party, that, that they can't be in sync with law and order because law and order actually means they have to obey the law. And the law that we have doesn't allow them to behave this way. They get away with a certain amount of things like gerrymandering. We, we now have, we, the Supreme Court has enabled so many pernicious 
actions, anti-democratic behavior, the flooding of campaigns with, with dark money. And I'm sure the congressman, you know how this has changed over time, that like the radical increase in the amount of money. Yep. But I think there's there's this this kind of need now is to celebrate a, a, a autocratic style of leadership because democracy, when it's majoritarian, when it actually functions, doesn't serve their interests. Um, since your op-ed, we've seen attacks on FBI offices in, in, in real time. I mean, we had a guy with an AR-15 go after the FBI in Cincinnati. We've We've seen threats from a, a person in Pennsylvania. There's been a major upswing in violent threats online, including a wave of anti-Semitic attacks on the judge who issued the warrant and threats against him, threats against the DOJ leadership. Now, casting aspersions on our law enforcement agencies isn't new. I mean, Donald Trump started it way back when, when he started saying disrespectful things about our intelligence agencies and ignoring them. But do you think Republican office holders and Trump himself bear responsibility for this, this, this extraordinary upswing and violent threats online, this wave of attacks? That, I guess that's one question. And, and the other question is, what might happen in the event of arrests or indictments of Trump and his allies? What do you, who's responsible and what do you see coming? Well, I mean, I think you really put your finger on this grave problem that we have is that this is not just Donald Trump. It is not just a few people, but it is the, 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 the fault of the leadership of the Republican Party that they are so crazed with keeping in sync with Donald Trump, perhaps with the interests of their base, that they have lost any interest in actually being leaders lost any interest in public service, lost any patriotic interest in protecting our democracy and rule of law and our constitution. And instead, what they're doing is attacking the very forces that are trying to keep the law intact. And, and so I think, yes, that is an incitement to violence. Once you start attacking rule of law and you start attacking the people who are trying to enforce it, you've given a license to those who want to respond in a violent way because shouldn't they? If what is going on is not respected and we don't think that rule of law is of value, then why wouldn't you fight for your interests in a way that uses violent means? Because we no longer have a system that functions on respect for the laws that should govern us or do govern us. So I think there's, there's the blame is clearly with those leaders who have not stepped up to say, we have to understand that these are laws that govern us all and no one is above the law. And at least to the extent that they, that they could say something like that, even if they were then to go on and say, but we don't know that Donald Trump has done anything. They didn't necessarily have to say that he was guilty or he should be prosecuted. I mean, Don, Merrick Garland hasn't even decided whether he's gonna prosecute Donald Trump or anyone else necessarily. They were executing a warrant to get the documents back. That's what they were doing. Those documents have to be in a secure place. But to your second question, I think, unfortunately, because they've already unleashed the potential for violence, that there have been death threats and, 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 and other forms of, of threats and potential violent behavior. I think if there are actual indictments and prosecutions go forward, I think we really will be in danger of a large violent 
reaction from the Trump base, inflamed by Trump himself and the other leaders of the Republican Party. That does seem to be Im implicitly where we've landed, that the threat that hangs over all of us is, sure, go ahead, follow the law, execute the law as, as you see fit. But there's, there's a threat of violence behind it. It's if you go forward with this, you've bought into a civil war. You've bought into, I mean, you, you like what you saw in the insurrection. Well, that's, that's a warm-up act. And am I being a, a little inflammatory in the way I characterize that? Maybe. But that does seem to be ultimately what Republicans are saying here, which is all they have to back up their position is the threat of, if you do this, there's going to be chaos. So are you really sure you want to follow through on a prosecution here? Of course, another aspect of the Republican response has been to claim from the get-go that investigating former leaders is just out of bounds. It's just not something that America can or should do. The quote that you included back on August 9th, when you wrote your New York Times op-ed from Ron DeSantis said that this is the behavior of a, quote, banana republic. Now, in our show here on Monday, I pointed to a list that includes France, Germany, Italy, Australia, Taiwan, Israel, Japan, South Korea, Czechoslovakia, and Slovenia, which are all democracies with a functioning judicial branch. And they've all prosecuted or even imprisoned former leaders when they commit crimes. I was just asking Caroline about this language that many Republican office holders and leaders adopted in the wake of the FBI search, which was to try to cast it as illegitimate, as politicizing law enforcement, as politicizing and weaponizing the judiciary. They, the implication was that any time you go after a former leader for committing crimes, all you're doing is sort of third world country, banana republic, strong arm tactics to go after your political opponents. And indeed, Look, Caroline, you are the expert on this. That's exactly essentially what Donald Trump tried to do in Ukraine when he tried to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and exercised his his political power to do that. And so, I mean, there are circumstances clearly where it is illegitimate to use the apparatus of government to go after political opponents. But that's as per the list that I, I just rattled off there. It's also something that strong democracies with strong respect for the rule of law and constitution that they also do if, if their leaders have committed bona fide crimes. So the question I put to you is, how do you tell the difference between mm -hmm. politicizing the judiciary and a legitimate and, and righteous exercise of the rule of law? Well, it's a great question. I mean, I think there are a couple of ways that you can analyze that. One is, who is the decider? Which entity, institution makes a decision about how to respond to a alleged illegality? Is that the elected and political partisan leadership? Or is that some more independent type of process? So that's a, an important question. How politicized is the prosecution in terms of how much ownership does the president say or a prime minister of a country have over the decisions that individual prosecutors make? And the second question is, what is the reason behind the prosecution? As you mentioned, to go after a rival 
sounds like the intention is not the kind of one that should be used to pursue a prosecution. However, if there's an important interest, now, for example, again, we still don't know if there will be any prosecutions that come out of this, but the execution of the warrant was done for a profoundly important reason for the interest that we have as a nation in protecting our nuclear secrets, other types of national security information that Donald Trump uh, took away to his winter palace to stick in a, in a, in a in a vault or, or in boxes in places that were not necessarily very um, well controlled, access to who knows how many people. So the reasons behind it are very significant. And the countries that you mentioned have also have, have maybe even more distinctly than we do, a, a divisions between the criminal justice enforcement process and the political leadership. And they also have been very careful in which former leaders have been pursued. What kinds of charges? They have to be very, very serious. But I would say there is this, this, there is, it's a difficult question because on the one hand, we really don't want political rivals to be pursued, even if there is a colorable claim, if it's not sufficiently serious, because that might be a pretext, right? Well, their prosecutorial discretion is something people are familiar with, right? You don't follow up on every single infraction or every single illegal act because there's only so many resources and there are questions about what's the most effective for protecting rule of law. But the, on the flip side is, what is the incentive to obey the law for a future president if these laws are not enforced, the Presidential Records Act is already a very difficult. I have to have a huge amount of admiration for the National Archives staff after following this issue. The doggedness with which they pursued those documents to get them back. If they're not there doing that, how much sloppiness can happen at the end of an administration? People are out the door. They are looking, they are on their way to their next job. They, they lost the election or they're done two terms. But either way, they're tired or they're mad. And the last thing they want to do is put things in care carefully in boxes and label them and make sure that everything is there instead of just like, wouldn't you just like to round file that or put that through the shredder? Wouldn't that just save a huge amount of time? Do I really have to put that in a file and label it and make a list? And so without that kind of really committed doggedness, we wouldn't know what presidents have done in their administration. We wouldn't have that kind of record. And so... I think there are a lot of reasons that this, this is a difficult question, but I think those two main issues are, are who makes the decision and what is the reason for the prosecution are two really effective ways. And I would just say, want add one thing, the thing that has really worried me under, well, under Donald Trump and certain Republican leadership is their idea of the unitary executive, which I won't go into a great amount of detail, but it really says that the president is in charge of everything in the executive branch and Congress can't require a higher standard for firing a certain type of official, just cause, for example, or creating an independent prosecutor. For that, for the unitary executive, because that's illegitimate. And then even every prosecutor in the Department of Justice reports to the president. To me, that is an incredibly dangerous theory it is one that's been embraced by people like Orban in Hungary. Certainly, it's a it's it's Putin's theory, right? I'm the I'm in charge, and everything everybody reports to me, and therefore, if I don't like what you did, I can prosecute you for it, and I make the decision. That just cannot be how our government should function. Well, just to follow up on that for a second, so it, it seems like it is kind of a, a a circular line of reasoning where Republicans seem to have adopted this view that there is this unitary, all-powerful, winter palace-occupying executive under whom 
prosecutions might truly be an exercise in judgment from the top leader. The top leader might have the final say. And under that circumstance, they, their, their worldview might truly be that any prosecution is by definition a political exercise because it is the decision ultimately of the president, the chief executive, which is not the way our system is supposed to work, should work, and is a clear dividing line here. But just to, just to kind of push connecting the last two topics here, it's one of the things you just raised is the importance of pursuing prosecutions like this in order to uphold the rule of law in the future. There has to be a standard that presidents are held to, or they will just abuse the law in the future because they know they can get away with it. But you also noted the concept of prosecutorial discretion. So just to kind of put it in very concrete terms, if what this amounted to was, hey, you took some records that you, you threw in boxes at the end of your term. You shouldn't have done that. You got to get them back to the archives. Would you have supported the search for, for these records at Mar-a-Lago? Or does it really have to rise to a clear danger to national security interests as it seems to have because these documents were top secret, special compartmentalized access documents only. Well, it's, 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 this is kind of a, a sui generis, to use a favorite Latin term for lawyers. This is kind of a, a one of a kind. And so I hope I don't really have to answer your question because we've never, I think, had to deal with this. When, when there has been, have been problems with the Presidential Records Act, I think generally what's happened is that there's a negotiation that goes on and um, things get worked out. It's it's not a typical law for of a, for prosecutions at all. And so it, it is why it was so incredibly bizarre to sort of see this happening initially. Except that we all knew that then there was something really there. But nobody. I mean, former presidents typically, at least so far as I know, there hasn't been any evidence of any of them walking out the door with who many, how many, how many boxes of of highly sensitive information, including access to our, our nuclear weapons secrets and who knows what else. So it's sort of a kind of, I hate to, to answer that because I, I hope we never really get to the situation where it's become that again. Again, normally maybe there's some mistakes or the, the people forget, they don't realize, they left, they took some documents, they thought they were kind of cool. They walked away with them or there's, anyway, I think it's usually something that they've been able to work out without a, a huge, a big deal and needing to go to a court and exer exercise a subpoena. So in a normal circumstance, no, I think it has never really required this kind of legal process. And I think it just speaks to the incredible obtuseness and, and, and illegal practices of Trump and the Trump administration, that it became this situation where they, they just didn't return the documents. I just want to reflect quickly back on the thoughts about the archives first, because I served on the Committee on Government Oversight and Reform. And in fact, I was on the subcommittee that had jurisdiction over the National Archives. And when most people think about the National Archives, they think about, oh, that's the place where I can go see the Declaration of Independence and, and the Constitution. And, and isn't, that, isn't that cute? There they are in the glass cases, and I'll go with my school group and take a look. 
But the National Archives is a very, very important agency that is the keeper of institutional memory for federal agencies, but especially the office of the presidency, because when presidents leave, they're gone, usually, and and their stuff, all the papers and all that are very important to be preserved. So the National Archives is a, a very important place for the preservation of our continuing institutional memory. And just reflecting quickly as, as a prosecutor about, well, banana republics and, and whether the president can just order stuff to happen. Well, we do have this thing in the United States, or we have had, called checks and balances and different institutions in government. And in the case we're talking about, the search of Mar-a-Lago, there was an independent review by a judge of the application for the warrant and the issuance of a warrant, not by the DOJ, not by Merrick Garland, but by a judge. And if you eviscerate that, we are in we are in no man's land. So now I'll get to a question, which is this, that we have seen what I call a rising disregard or disrespect for institutions of government in general for a long time. But you point out, in your opinion piece, that people who celebrate disregard for the law are now ascendant in Republican politics. I guess sort of a two-part question. Given that trust or slippage in our respect for institutions has been ongoing, is this a different pattern that has roots in the rise of Trump and the Trump presidency that's now playing out across the country? Is it different from the general lack of trust in institutions that, that we've seen? Well, I suppose to some extent it is. It's in some ways, a I think, something that has been incipient in the Republican Party for a long time, basically attacking government, attacking public service, dragging down the institutions themselves. For a while, they've tried to separate law enforcement from type of of negative treatment. But I think it is really hard at a certain point to distinguish in a consistent and coherent way when you argue that government is evil and it needs to be disestablished to somehow say that we should still have an infrastructure of, of law enforcement. People do all sorts of things in law enforcement. They're enforcing regulations to keep our air clean and our water clean, or at least to the extent the Supreme Court will allow that anymore. They're doing lots of things. They're keeping our meat from being contamin contaminated with salmonella or other types of, of, of bacteria, viruses, diseases, et cetera. And so law enforcement is not just the, the cop on the beat or the FBI agent. It's a lot of other people who are doing their jobs. So over time, it's really hard, I think, as, 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 as I said, as a coherent attack to segregate out this type of, of government service from that one, especially when it's about enforcing rule of law. So I think, I think they did, it's gotten worse, I think, because now they have to actually abandon the, their false narrative that they stood up for, for law enforcement and for the, for the blue line and, and all of that. And in fact, not so much. Well, I think Paul raises a really good connection in that that's the nature of conspiracy theories is that they're self-reinforcing, that any piece of information that would tend to work against the conspiracy theory has to be integrated into the kind of the warped view of the world. And so if you believe that only a conspiracy would, would go after Donald Trump, then an independent judge and the FBI and the DOJ and every other 
person who lines up against Donald Trump has to get integrated into the conspiracy. They're part of it. And on the right, they call it the deep state. Now, I say all that because we're recording this on Wednesday, the 17th. This will be out tomorrow. And as we're recording this, a topic that's trending on Twitter right now, and I'm sorry to drag all of us into the swampy mind of right-wing conspiracy theorists, but a topic that's trending on Twitter is a set of claims that the FBI agents involved in the search at Mar-a-Lago were themselves under investigation by John Durham. He's the special counsel who was appointed by Donald Trump to look into the roots of the Russia investigation. Now, the implication seems to be, forgive me if I'm not following their logic exactly right, the implication seems to be that the FBI is really to blame here because the Russia investigation was illegitimate. And so this further search is just the same people from the deep state doing more illegitimate stuff. I, I just, I hate even repeating this because it's so insane. But again, it just brings up how pathological and self-reinforcing all of this has become. So I, I just want to take us all back do you do you see the genesis of this pattern of we have to take down the the perception that law enforcement is independent that law enforcement can be trusted do you see the genesis of all of that in the in the original russia investigation is is that where this kind of came from that this this idea that our own intelligence agencies can't be trusted our own law enforcement can't be trusted judges can't be trusted is is that where this comes from Oh, I, it's a great question. It certainly was something that was very provocative in terms of, or provoked a reaction, but they want to, to have their cake and eat it too. If, if I may phrase a Marie Antoinette, right. Or no, that's anyway, let them eat cake, but no, they, but I think when it comes to law enforcement involving somebody like John Durham, they're all for it, right? John Durham is somehow legitimate in his, in his investigation of the investigators. And yet, let's remember what he came up with, which was the big donut hole, I think, pretty much. And so they're, 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 they're able to compartmentalize, I think, when necessary and still pretend they're for law enforcement. But yeah, certainly the way that they demonized the, the, the Russia investigation, the 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 steel dossier and other support for that that were not deemed to be 100% credible and certainly when people bring tips to the FBI or produce something the FBI gets all sorts of stuff like that that they have to pick through and some of it might lead them in some places and others not lead them nowhere but but they created a narrative around that to deflect people's attention attention from the fact that there was really there were a lot of contacts between Donald Donald Trump's campaign and Putin's Russian government and a whole variety of, of other. And so what better way to deflect people's attention from that to then just to attack the law enforcement and to attack the investigation. But so I think you, you started off the program referring to some the, the way that they have done this with respect to the Lago, uh, what they would call a raid in which I would call some polite FBI agents knocking on the door with a subpoena signed by a judge saying, excuse us, we have the right to come and look at the, look for these documents. But then they attack those people. They attack the process. They never suggest that Donald Trump did anything wrong. It's a classic device, a, a rhetorical device uh, of how to deflect attention from a strong argument, right? Just ignore it, uh, attack the person who made the argument or attack something else. That's, that's orthogonal, as law professors love to say, to the actual main question, which is that is it comes in at some, it's a perpendicular kind of a way of answering the question rather than right. actually answering the question. 
It's all back to Darvo eventually. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. It's all back to Darvo. So I mean, it's look. It's a it's a fairly well well trod path for dictators and authoritarians. I mean, this is we we've seen this before. We we've seen this in other countries. We've seen world wars sparked by the consequences. Um, in our country, our our country has been founded really the basic principle that no one is above the law and that we are a government of laws and not of men, as it is said. So how much damage has all of this done to the rule of law? I mean, if a significant segment of the country has now been conditioned and programmed to believe that federal law enforcement is politicized and weaponized, and if that's become the go-to move for Republican office holders, as it seems to be, what are the lasting consequences what do we do about it? Well, I, I am extremely worried about that. I mean, we just have to think back to January 6th, and which I am, and, and this must have been for both of you as well, having spent time on Capitol Hill as I did, was absolutely horrifying. I thought that we really were facing a military coup or, or a, a, maybe the military wasn't involved, thank, thankfully, but the that we were facing a coup driven by Donald Trump. And the, as the, we watched the people, and I'm sure you were all watching this live, right? Marching on Capitol Hill, invading the, invading the Capitol, seeking people out, trying to, stating the names of certain members of Congress that they wanted to kill, killing, actually killing several law enforcement officers, injuring them. It, it was so terrifying that the, the consequences of, of what had already happened in the Republican Party and the kinds of statements they had already made had already led to that situation. Since then, we have seen so many of them not condemn the actions on January 6th. So for me, that really shows us what the direction of the party is and is a really bad sign for the future. It is astonishingly depressing. I hate to leave <laughs> this show on such a dour note, but I think that's the, the, unfortunately, look, if reality has a well-known liberal bias, then sometimes reality just has a, a well-known depressing bias. And that that does seem to be where we are. All we can hope for is that at some level, the arc of the legal universe and the moral universe and America is long, but it does bend ultimately toward justice. Caroline, thank you so much for your really insightful and prescient op-ed in the New York Times. You really nailed it. We're, we're, come, we're more than a week out from it and you had everything already smacked down a week ago. And so thank you all very much for, for all of your analysis and for bumming us all out. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like that's my job these days, unfortunately. Well, I hope I hope at some point I'll be able to make people feel better when I'm talking about politics, but not right now, but hopefully soon. But thank you so much for having me on, both of you. It was really a pleasure to spend this time talking to you.